Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you are like me and you are not so great at planning ahead, you have got to try Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight is an app that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute or up to seven days in advance. It's perfect for a spontaneous getaway or indulging in a little staycation. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So what are you waiting for? Get in on these killer last minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan, and I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me in the studio in a flame-retardant suit, it's Andy Greenwald! Have they invented that in Westeros? No. Although, you know, the way that Betty Off and Weiss go, and maybe they will. That's what I'm saying. I feel like Kyburn could come up with that real quick. Andy, this is The Watch. We are part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Subscribe to as many Ringer podcasts as humanly possible. House of Carbs, Jam Session, Bachelor Party, Masked Man, Achievement Oriented, Big Picture, about, MLB Show, NFL Show, what about NBA Show. Rewatchables. The Rewatchables. I'm psyched about this. That's coming soon. Ringer FC, our new soccer podcast launching this week in honor of the Premier League. We have so much stuff for you guys to listen to. We have a ton of stuff for you guys to read. Big week over at TheRinger.com, so Mm -hmm. please check us out this week. we got a lot of stuff going on. NFL preview, Premier League preview, Game of Thrones writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm here with Andy Greenwald. We do talk the Thrones together with Mallory and Jason. Uh, Last night was a great show. I love this table setting. Thanks, man. Can we set one more placemat here? Sure. Because later in the show... Mark Duplass is going to join us. That's ex- great. You did a nice. You said, "Hey, the the centerpiece. Let's move it to the left an mm-hmm. inch." Mm-hmm. It's actually that. we have a lazy Susan set up. Here. <laughs> uh, this was this was really great. We talked to Mark on Friday yeah. uh, about his new HBO. He and his brothers Jay's new uh, HBO anthology series, Room One Hundred Four, and uh, it was more than that in our conversation. Though. Yeah, we talked a lot about like how to uh, work with limits. I think that was sort of the theme. which is something I've been operating on for about five years <laughs> now. I limit you. <laughs> you hold me back. Um, Andy, I want to talk a little bit about Thrones. We're going to we're going to jump to a couple of other random tidbits before we're going to go Thrones, a couple of little small things and then we'll get to to Mark um about in about 20 minutes, but so one of the best things I saw online, like the 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 Thrones social mm-hmm. media the memes are great. Mm. Gallagher had a great one last night of Jamie tapping his head. You know that was a good one. I I also like the one we put out of uh, Jamie being like, "This is fine." Yes, but uh, Megan Schuster retweeted this last night. I can't remember who was the originator of this, but it was basically pointing out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is it that Jamie is running on a horse in ankle deep water? Yeah, and then somebody Brian Dawkins is of him, him. Yeah, and he winds up in like the bottom of like Hunt for Red October. Yeah. Water. What is the geography here? Is that what you're what's asking? What's the sort of topography? Like, what's yeah. the, the oceanography of this? Like, yeah. you know, and like, even people, uh, and I'm sure by the time Binge Mode goes up on Wednesday, they will have completely mapped this out. But even people who are very familiar with the lay of the land, like Mal and Jason. I, I, by the way, I just saw Jason at the uh, the commissary here on the lot. Was and he, he levitating? He was basically practicing cartography. <laughs> <laughs> he, had, he had so many pieces of yeah. blue architecture paper in front of him. Yeah, because um, it's a TV show. Yeah. It's a TV show now maybe more than it has felt like in recent years. And I think that's been an interesting conversation that's been happening around our office this morning. And I think even last night as we were watching, there was some, oh, okay. So like the Dothraki just kind of like went around. Sure. They they floated on and nobody noticed like a horde of Dothrakis 
moving across the landscape. They teleported. Yeah, there's just like Jamie's more concerned with like getting this wheat across the the, the bridge than he is like about having tribute to, like, to the great two... Harris Whittles. Give me that wheat. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, like I I wanted to talk to you a little bit today about some mm-hmm. of the. You know, there's dragons, so logic gaps are fine, but there's some TV storytelling stuff that's coming into play. I'm happy you brought this up. Um, Before before I answer that, let me just say that the one thing that that put my mind at ease a little bit, and this Mm -hmm. was – I think this was expressed last night on our show, but it's worth saying again in terms of the geography, was that it's because – Lord Tarly comes back and says to Jamie, the gold is mostly through the gates of King's yeah. Landing. It suggests that they were very close to King's Landing, that this attack did not happen in the shadow of Highgarden. Sure. Time had passed as they had moved from Highgarden, where they were at the beginning of the episode, and Bronn says, give me that castle, to where they were almost home. And as we know, they're at Dragonstone. So that's really, that's like, the, that's not like the um, the A train all the way from Inwood to Queens, this mm-hmm. is like taking the Times Square shuttle. Sure. You okay. know, uh, back when the subway was but a working organism. But even a horde of Dothraki and the Times Square shuttle would be like, oh, hey, I wonder what those guys are here for. I've been literally been on the Times <laughs> Square shuttle with no one but Dothraki those with Those are me. just Mets fans. I don't judge. <laughs> um, so, I, look, I think you can sort of squint and it, and it could make sense. But here, here, here's my counter to your point. Yes, there are a lot of convenient things happening uh, quickly mm-hmm. now. Um but I would counter by saying this. Last night was exhilarating and incredibly uh, pleasurable. No complaints. Because of the way it worked us over the way a TV show does. We have spent four weeks and four episodes this season. This is what we do, dissecting it, pouring over every frame. Well, let me be clear. We don't always do the pouring over every frame, but we work with Jason and Mallory who lovingly pour over every frame mm-hmm. and we peer over their shoulders and try to soak up some knowledge. We watch the show with them every week also. Um, last night during the last 10 minutes of the episode, everybody was levitating. Yeah, man. That was really fun. My heart was really pounding in my chest, like legitimately. It, like It was so fun yeah. to be watching it. And it was fun to see our scholars having fun with it too. Um and, you know, I, I think that I, I saw some light criticism of the episode, which honestly just kind of felt knee jerk, this kind of criticism to say, well, but no one we know really died. And everyone conveniently escaped to, to fight another day from from Bronn to the dragon to Dickon, like everybody that we truly care about. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Amazon spinoff coming. I love Dickon. Um, <laughs> that everybody survived. And that's kind of convenient. Where did you get that one? That's TV. That's, I'm a little tired, but there's still a couple couple jewels in the dust up okay. there. Um, but I loved it. I welcome that. You I know, because it. No, I'm not saying I just love the episode. I love that everyone conveniently survived because there was a, a feeling of pleasure in this episode that is not often, we don't often get from Game of Thrones because, and again, this is to Game of Thrones' credit. I'm not wishing it was a different show. But these moments of exhilaration often come at a cost. If you just go back last season to Battle of the Bastards, the good guy won, but the good guy literally had to climb out of a mountain of his friend's corpses to do it. And we lost Yeah, but those guys one, for the, the most giant. were red shirts. Like we well, we lost the giant. I mean, there's always like yeah. a little, yeah, I mean, this is still mass entertainment, but there are always a couple dings along the way. Yeah. Last night was thrilling because we all got through it. There's more to come. And because, and, and, and this is a point I, I brought up last night as well, that um, because of the way the show has, has woven the story tapestry over the last few years, we care about people on both sides. 
with no caveats. Yeah. We were we were psyched for Bronn to survive and somehow be able also, to operate this I mean, machine. Think, and we didn't want him to kill the dragon or Danny. Right. And I okay, so here's the way I would put the way the show feels a little bit different now than it did in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I Sean was talking about this earlier. Fantasy was was talking a little bit about this earlier about how subversive the show was when it first started, right? Mm-hmm. And you could make the argument that when they first the first few seasons of the show, they and when I say they, I mean the people who are making the TV show had the greatest coloring book you could possibly want. And their job was to shade it in. Their job was to cast. Their job was to mm-hmm. execute these stories these and these huge battles. No and, small feat. Yeah, no small feat, of course. And pace it and and tell the story in an effective way and, um, frankly, maybe improve the dialogue a bit. Uh, Possibly. Which is not to minimize the accomplishment of what it is because I do think it's one of – it's one of my favorite shows that's ever been on television. Mm-hmm. But we are now past the book, and I think that somewhat that feeling of subversion not only is like a little bit gone, but I would I would venture to say kind of can't come back. This show can't end with the Night King dropping a bowling ball and being like, I'm finished. Yeah. You, you know, it, like that would be fucked up. People yeah. wouldn't like that. Like we might think we would like that, but – and I was, you know, I was texting I drink with your mother's milkshake. Night. I was texting with friends last night and we were kind of trying to figure out like, what do you think is going to like, is, is Tyrion going to die? Is Jamie going to like, yeah. and it was, we're actually down to the Magnificent Seven now. Like we don't want any of these people to yeah, go. I, I, I was, yeah, I was, I was sort of toying with that idea too. Um, and it'd be worth talking to Jason Mallory about um, when they wake up from <laughs> their, their well-deserved slumber in a couple months. But um uh, yeah, I think that the the conversation for the last year plus was like, what what a terrible L for George R. R. Martin to yeah. have these guys yeah. lap him and finish his story, and then we would say that you know I wonder if I mean Jason sort of straight up straight up thinks he's never going to finish the books now, but is he now going to make things needlessly complicated and obtuse just to do a different version of the story? Emerging kind of is this possibility in my mind, of how this could still work as a complimentary, as complimentary works. Yeah. Because even if the end result is the same, he can talk about how long it took people to get places. He can add side quests and adventures and go into this the psyche of characters that we no longer have time to dwell on, you know? And in so doing, he might be able to complicate a narrative that will likely emerge at the end of the series once the Hosannas are done, which is to say... The heroes kind of won in the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying everyone left on the show is going to survive. Obviously not. And I and I don't just mean because I don't think the Lannisters are making it to next season. What I mean is um, some, some Starks are going to be fine. I don't think Jon Snow and Daenerys are going to die or Jon Snow again. You know, I don't think I'm spoiling anything to say that. And I, I, I've said this from the beginning. I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with the show uh, surprising us, dazzling us, upending our expectations, and then and then I, I don't even know what word to use. It's not exactly restoring our expectations, but but tweaking them and playing to them. You know, I, I think that um, if you look at the arc of fantasy storytelling and this show itself, if Daenerys ends this series on the Iron Throne, um, that's 
having a woman win in that way is in and of itself a surprise. The way that she's winning is in and of itself a surprise. I think that one one way in which it could still be subversive is that, and they've talked a lot, the characters have discussed this a lot on this show about how the reason why they're kind of throwing their lot behind people like John and Daenerys is that they have a vision for a more just and peaceful world, a better mm-hmm. world. You mm-hmm. know, They don't care that you're a Targaryen. They don't care if you're a Stark or not or a Snow or like whatever. Mm-hmm. They see your vision for life on this on this continent or this in this world to mm-hmm. be just like a more pleasant experience. Mm-hmm. And no matter who's sitting on the throne at the end, it will be interesting to see whether or not the world is better for it. Yeah. I think that would be interesting. Now personally, like I have I'm on the record as saying my preferred ending for this series is the Night King baby mm-hmm. on an ice dragon mm-hmm. with a Valerian steel dagger in between its teeth mm-hmm. lands on on in King's Landing and goes, I'm the captain now. I think that's good. I thought that he would do that and then turn to the camera and say, did I do that? In like full Urkel voice. Look who's talking. Yeah, I'm into uh, that. I, I, I also kind of like the idea of Tyrion waking up in an inn in Vermont next to Suzanne Plachette. That's good stuff. I think there's just a lot of opportunity Nobody's here. Nobody's done that before. No one has ever done that. That's Not, talk about subversion. I know, right? Um, okay, Game of Thrones, we got that. By the way, Thursday, uh, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m., 1 p.m., uh, Eastern time. We're doing a special midweek episode of Talk the Thrones. Mid-season. Mid-season episode. Yeah. Give, again, dole some awards out. Give away some hardware. And you can find that on, we'll be tweeting it, the ringer will be tweeting yeah, it. Yeah, you can't miss it. But, yeah, it's crazy that we are now over halfway done this season. Yeah. yeah. That is very surprising. See you in 2024 when they come back. Yeah, that's that's the other thing. We don't know when when the show's coming back. But, but, I, but I'll say, like, before we move on, the show has continued to surprise. I, I did think that we're always trying, you know, this is maybe, I don't know if everyone does this. It's, I think it's a, a product of how everyone watches TV now, but maybe. Trying to figure it out. Trying to figure it out, but also trying to get a feel for it. This, yeah, sure. I, this is sort of what we do now because we have to, you know, stand up and talk about it live every week now. But this, the show has done a good job this season of surprising us. And I don't know if that's because they weren't able to find a rhythm and I'm praising that, yeah. you know, as a plus. But I'll say it again, like this was definitely an all-time good episode and it was an all-time good episode last night because of the thrills of the last 10 minutes, but but more so because of the engaging storytelling in the quieter scenes leading up to that. It, 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 it was an episode that could, that, could, that could do both. So last night when we finished Talk the Thrones, Greenwald had what we call in the biz a hard out. Yeah. Why don't you tell the people where you went? I grabbed a, I grabbed a slice. <laughs> Took off the makeup. Classic New York move. Took off the makeup. Yeah. Put on the clown makeup. Because uh-huh. I was going to ItCon, a Stephen <laughs> King fan fest. And uh, no, I, I I caught a, a ride sharing app. Was it was like the four people who saw Dark Tower? Did they go to? <laughs> they were all there. They were they were bused directly there. Cool. Um, I uh, I got in a ride sharing app and I went up to the Hollywood Bowl. To see Spoon and Bell and Sebastian. Mm-hmm. It was like Matador Palooza. Mm-hmm. It was our youth. This is our youth up there. And I have to say, Chris, it made me, it was a wonderful night under the stars. Great concert, great set. And um, big, uh, big tape trading community in the Bell and Sebastian world. Listen, it it made me feel a lot of emotions about, about, about my life and about you as well. Oh, man. Because the Hollywood Bowl is, a, I'd never been there before. It's a very beautiful venue. It's very nice. It's also so L.A. in that, of course, you're sitting outside and it's beautiful, but everything just kind of works in a way that is so confusing to someone who still has a little New York in him. Mm-hmm. Even afterwards when we're leaving and people are like masses, streaming masses of, um, 
you know, like uh, C ninety kids are like storming down yeah. Highland, no longer Quote, kids. Unquote, kids, yeah, no yeah, longer kids. Right. And people are like, every so often, someone steps into the street, and like a kindly person is like, "Excuse me, ma'am, could you please stay on the sidewalk?" And yeah. the person's like, "Oh, certainly, of course. Yeah. <laughs> this would never, never work on the East Coast." But I was just thinking that this band that I saw um, play this massive show at the Hollywood Bowl, I remember seeing for the first time with you. 19 Earth years ago yeah. at a lecture hall. In, at BU. At BU. Yeah. And I, I just go, thinking of a band that can scale from one thing, you know, from that to this in 20 years and be able to play this is, was really amazing. Um, thinking also of just the, like, do you remember afterwards we saw Stuart Murdoch, the singer of Bell and Sebastian, get into a screaming fight with uh, Isabel Campbell, who was his then girlfriend and was the, like, cellist. And then she, like, stormed off. Was it really, like, that big? Was it a screaming fight? Or was it, it, we, we saw them fighting, you yeah. know, and then she missed the next two shows, like, oh, in, in yeah. Philly or whatever. Yeah. And then also you afterwards you took us to uh, your spot in Boston. Deli House. Deli House. It was close. We walked there, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but it was it, – it, it, it's a thing when you realize because and – and this is the universal part of it that I think that people – hopefully this is still a thing for, for younger people. Yeah. There are the bands that sort of define – very fraught periods of your life. And I mean fraught in like a, a nice way. Like when you're in high school, when you're in college, the bands you listen to then sort of define you. And also time is very compressed. So I remember thinking like, do you remember when when like uh, U2 put out uh, Octung Baby and uh, and Zuropa and then they went dark and they like came back with pop? Mm-hmm. I think three years elapsed. But I remember when they came back, I was like, my God, they have literally been to Mars. Yeah. They went on a mission to Mars and yeah. came back. Three years now is nothing. So just to think about the the length and breadth of a band's career and still being able to like go see them and it was it was a wonderful evening. What a lovely little anecdote. Just, I love that. You, 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 ever, you ever think about years like that? I think about that all the time, man. Because <laughs> also because we're in the business now of like coronating things, mm-hmm. uh, all you know everything is an anniversary, and so I'm constantly confronted with you know before I think even as recently as five years ago I was like. Sure, yeah, like ten year anniversary, it's not a big deal. And now, like everything is twenty and twenty five. Yeah, that's right. And I, it's just, it's just staggering. I, I have a, I, I have a lot of memories of going to visit your your series of, of of Boston residencies and being like, look, I just copped this new Bell and Sebastian EP on Jeepster Records for twenty five dollars, and you'd be like, I have, cool. Here's here's the new Promise Ring album. <laughs> and I was like, no thanks. Or here's a festival of dead deer ten inch <laughs> with like a serrated edge. Uh, I remember very, very, very vividly, uh, I was like going on quote unquote, like vacation. I was driving from Boston to Vermont to see my parents. And, you know, like I had basically put aside 60 bucks. I was working at Newberry comics and I was like, okay, I'm going to buy a bunch of CDs to listen to in the car. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. bought, if you're feeling sinister Mm -hmm. and 10 rapid by Mogwai, I remember we're in the same purchase. That is very, it's a Scottish twofer. I think I was like, Hey man, you should check out these bands. No, 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 no. Because I went to um, uh, I went to Glasgow in '97, and there were posters everywhere for so you the, invented Bell and for the Lazy Line Painter Jane EP. I actually played Glockenspiel on those early EPs. People don't know Did that. Did I introduce you to Mogwai? Maybe. Um, I think you were the. I think you were like that. You should actually listen to this, even though you're you're scared of what you think they might sound Post-rock, like. Post rock, yeah. They were the first band we uh, we interviewed together in in 98 that's right I also want to just um, was that 98 or 99 99 I also just want to before we move on put this out like the secret into the universe okay you know know, I was very excited Stuart Murdoch from Bell and Sebastian was supposed to come in to record a podcast today yeah 
I think he, he wasn't feeling well. His health was a little off. He was a little mad that, that nobody died on Game of Thrones last night. I think night. he was a little, he just wanted to watch Talk to <laughs> Thrones. Uh, no, I'm not saying this to put him on blast. He, he's still on tour, but I just putting it in the universe and I hope that it happens someday. Maybe he'll, he'll call you up one day. Just be like, let's just do it. He'll just cold call me? Uh, Grimo, let's talk to Mark Duplass about his show, Room 104, which is on uh, Friday nights at 11.30 on the HBO network. Yeah. And a fun anthology series. 25-minute uh, episodes, We'll just basically. take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back with Mark Duplass. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Casper. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Supportive memory foams create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada with over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars. It's quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Andy, it's my favorite mattress. Here's the deal. I have a Casper in my guest room, but sometimes I like to be the guest myself. So sometimes I take a little siesta out there. I love my Casper mattress. You will too. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash watch and use offer code watch. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh are on a mission to save home cooking because it's just too good to go away. They want to make home cooking more fun, so they focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. They like to think of themselves as a farm-to-box company because they want everyone to have access to fresh ingredients that inspire great meals. But they don't stop there. They're also a couch-to-kitchen company because the best way to kick those 5 p.m. excuses is by feeling unstoppable in the kitchen. They do even more than that. They are proud to be a fork to feel good company because when you cook and eat delicious and healthy meals, you'll want to keep doing it again and again. If they could do the dishes for you, they would. But their number one priority is to get you cooking. HelloFresh currently offers customers a classic box, a veggie box, and a family box. Customers can order three to five different meals per week designed for two to four people, and new recipes are created every week. Their recipes will make you feel unstoppable, and your taste buds will thank you. In six easy-to-master steps, they get you chopping, zesting, and cooking like a natural because most of their recipes take just 30 minutes and require minimal equipment. They are constantly experimenting in the kitchen to get fresh, natural ingredients to shine, and they offer ever-changing menus, classic ingredients in a new light, and an easy-to-follow recipes that help you avoid the food coma. You feel good inside. I hate the food coma. This product is really good. Yeah. I got some of those recipes. We cooked them up. Not only did we enjoy all three of the ones they sent, we kept the recipe cards. Did you really? So that you could recook? They're in the rotation. That's great. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so that you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week of HelloFresh creates delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks like Greenwald on short on time. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. And HelloFresh employs two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure that it is nutritionally balanced. HelloFresh delivers food to your doorstep in a recyclable insulated box for free. And HelloFresh is now offering light summer meals. Thank you, HelloFresh, because I get crazy weighed down when I try to just cook up those really heavy pastas that I get used to making in January. And then I'm like, man, I'm dying out here. Yeah. So HelloFresh is offering these summer meals and they've just introduced breakfast options. 
Delicious ingredients you'll love to eat, simple recipes you'll love to cook, get cooking for less than $10 a meal. Greenwald loves it. I love it. Do they do breakfast pastas? Or we don't know yet. I don't know. I'm waiting for January when I get to have my breakfast ziti. I like to carve up. Greenwald loves it. I love it. For $30 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter WATCH30. That's W-A-T-C-H, the number three and the number zero when you subscribe. $30 off your first week of deliveries. You will not regret it. You'll feel great. You'll cook great. You'll be your best self. We are so thrilled to be joined by actor, producer, director, gearhead, Mm -hmm. uh, podcast aficionado, feng shui expert in terms of how much space you need, and co-creator of HBO's new anthology series, Room 104, Mark Duplass. Welcome. Hello, gentlemen. What's up, man? How's it going? Thanks for coming by on a Friday. Thanks for having me on a Friday. We are very excited to talk to you about Room 104 and other topics, but we have to lead with something, which is that the real victims of the recent HBO hack... Are um, we are the victims? Why? What because happened? Because we were unable to watch more than one episode of Room 104 oh. because the entire uh, screener system it went down. Collapsed. Yes, because I, the hackers were targeting, I believe, Room 104. Yeah, well, yeah, they were they were really after Room 104. <laughs> yeah. That's the show. <laughs> That's they, what I think. They accidentally gleaned some Game of Thrones stuff, but they threw that away. False flag. And that they wasn't what are it was about. ransoming <laughs> off episode two of Room 104, guys. And we considered ponying up for it because I think we both enjoyed the first episode oh, very much. Oh, yeah. Oh, excellent. Thanks, guys. Thanks for watching. We could explain it, but could you give our listeners a little bit more of a heads up about it? Because the first episode premiered last week. We're going to put this podcast up on Monday, so the listeners are ahead of us. They may have seen two episodes. they might have seen two. But this is an anthology series set in this one room, but the tone can vary from episode to episode. Yeah, I think that uh, when we started uh, coming up with the idea for this show, um, we got excited about the idea that, you know, it it would reboot itself every week in terms of... Different stories, different characters, um, but also changing the tone got really exciting for us. Um, It's something I've never uh, tried. I was always scared that it wouldn't work. Um, But we have this wonderful relationship with HBO where basically I bring them ideas and they say, that that sounds really tricky and that might not work. And I say, but I'll do it really cheaply. (laughs) And they say, okay, you can try it on Friday night. And that's what we do. Friday night's 1130. Friday night, 1130 show. That's such a cool, like, we just don't have a lot of everything. I mean, to the extent that even a time slot matters that much anymore. I don't know that it does. I'm not sure anymore. Even so... It, what was that show that used to be on Night Flight? What was the show that was like the the late night like? Kind of... I, I remember what used to be on cable TV at eleven thirty p.m. <laughs> yes, real six thirty two and thirty three. Tried to yeah. go back and forth between Cinemax and the next channel <laughs> yeah. four hundred times and see if you could get it to unscramble. Yes, <laughs> but this isn't about me. Yeah, but I like the Friday night at eleven thirty. It feels it feels apt for the show. Yeah, I mean, there's something I guess tonally appropriate in that it's a late night show and it's a little bit of a mixed bag. You never know what you're gonna get. You like. You might get a comedy, you might get a thriller, you might get something surreal, you might get like a really sweet little dramedy, or you might get a modern dance episode. Like it's kind of uh, it's kind of that Russian roulette vibe or just like, hey, tune in and, and see what happens. You've given yourself, a, I think, very healthy framework. So, it, it, you know, to sort of not rein yourselves in creatively, but give yourself some shape to the show. It's obviously all set in one. The there's, same a, there's a lot of shape to the room. show. Well, this is what I wanted to ask. Yeah. So you have, the, you have the room. There's only one set. Yeah. Um, you have it's a half-hour show. Um, when you sat down to sort of brainstorm this, even within those that framework, there's a lot of possibilities. Did you and your brother and your other collaborators, some of whom are really, all of whom are terrific, 
Um, what else did you lay down as the rules? Yeah, we kind of organically came up with a set of rules that we, you know, we admittedly allow ourselves to break. But the the function of the show is what can you do with limits? Um, and so when you sit down with the Room 104 kit, as it were, um, it comes with three days to shoot the episode. Okay. Uh, you're only allowed to have a few actors in the room. Um, you cannot leave the inside of the motel room whatsoever. So your whole story has to take place mm -hmm. there. And we provide everyone with a schematic of the room. Uh, we encourage everybody to find new ways to tell stories in there. Um, and then, and then from there, something really interesting happened, which is just like, I was honestly a little bit worried that we would write a season and be like, all right, there it is. Yeah. Well, those are the 12 you can do inside yeah. of 400 square feet and we're toast. Right. But somehow, and I don't know why, um, the challenges and the gentle constraints of the room mm -hmm. make you like punch against it a little bit like a little kid and it inspires you to break out of it. I read this um, essay once by uh, Stravinsky, who's like, you know, our big genius player. And, and he talked about how very early on in his life, he knew how to orchestrate really well. He knew how to write really well. He, he had the universe at his fingertips and it paralyzed him creatively. Right. And so what he would do is he would have people over to his house and he would say, uh, you write down an instrument, you write down an instrument, you write down an instrument. And he'd have a list and then he'd cover that side. And then he'd say, write down a random number next to those. And then he would be left with, all right, I have four trombones, two cellos, seven clarinets, and one tuba. Yeah. And I have to write something. And that was what allowed it, him to create. It, it's interesting because um, I think you and your brother, what you've built is a can I use the word factory? Is a is a. I think we uh, can go factory. I, I like it. I, li I like to be um, the Roger Corman of feelings. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. It's <laughs> kind like of the that. way I like to go. Like we we we've removed the the octopuses yes. and we've put in feelings. Oh, okay. Well, that works across the yeah. board then. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. maybe some octopuses. Next Sometimes time. the octopuses have feelings, and that's what Room One Hundred Four is all I've about. I've heard they do, and it makes me uncomfortable <laughs> yeah. about eating them. But. Uh, Regardless, you, you 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 are known for having taking a lot of creative freedom and making things, you know, which is very exciting and inspiring, I think, to people who look at sort of the monolith of Hollywood and think it's difficult to get things done. But it's interesting that already in our conversation and even before we hit record, when you noticed our space here, mm -hmm. our humble space, you were talking about limits. I was excited. I came in. I got to be honest with you guys. I came in. I saw there was only like two small rooms <laughs> and I was like, you guys are doing it right. And then I saw there was like another room with too much space. And I was like, guys, you're fired. You're using way too much space. Just too here. much overhead. Too yes. many extra guys. Too much over it. Podcast Studio 103 is I mean, not going to get me. I mean, we, we joke, but like, you know, I came up in the music business and I watched it drop out. I say came up. I was playing in indie rock bands yeah. making $87 a night. But And I watched it die. Um, and and I've, I have this thing inside of me that's like, unless you find a way to be sustainable at the absolute bottom feeder level, you're susceptible to just crashing. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I think Room 104 springs from that. It's it's a way to say, okay, I made a show called Togetherness. It was really exciting. They kind of overpaid us for it. It bought my house. That was wonderful. Um, and it was a little too expensive to stay on the air for the amount of people that were seeing it. Um, and I mean, that's an arbitrary decision, but that's the basic reasoning of why it's not around anymore, right? And a Room 104 is a show. I'm like, well, if I make something that costs about a quarter of that price and um, – doesn't need to have that many people to justify its existence. And that means I can take all the creative risks I want. 
that's kind of where I feel like our niche is starting to develop. It's really interesting to hear you talk about this because I've had, I've read and had conversations that sound like what you're saying in terms of like where you've read about what Soderbergh's trying to do mm-hmm. with Logan Lucky, what Joe Swanberg was doing with um, Win It All at Netflix and, mm-hmm. and creating new models. And even to some extent, Blumhouse, mm-hmm. which I think you've, you've worked with them before. I love Jason. Yeah. I mean, he and I make totally different content, but we share a very similar aesthetic. You don't right. share the octopuses, though. He takes those. <laughs> he, he, well, he's got all the octopuses. <laughs> I just want one. <laughs> Can you just give me one? But it does seem like you're, you, you, you mentioned the Roger Corman thing. It does seem like there is this exciting multiple new ways of working within all these different platforms and all these different ideas of going straight to VOD or like recouping money in different ways or setting limits for yourself to you working. You can do what you want as long as it stays under a certain number. It it seems like it's a fascinating time to be doing this. It is. And that's like kind of like, um, I guess the business side of it, but there's a much more personal creative side to this, which is, you know, my brother and I, like I'm 40 now, he's 44 and we've been making stuff for a long time that's been pretty insular in terms of like our collaborative circle and the two brothers doing their thing. And we always just talk about kind of our favorite artists and how they just get real boring and repetitive at this stage in their life. They have mm-hmm. kids and they settle in and they either franchise themselves like Elton John where they just like keep making the same thing and learn how to make money off of it by like – Do the Vegas residency You're doing thing. that whole yeah. situation um, or they get quiet and then they strike out on something that's like – totally odd and indulgent because they're disconnected from other artists and they're just like rich swimming in their pool all day. And so we've been conscious of this for a long time. And so Room 104 is, is it's also emblematic of our desire to, I guess, expand our circle of collaboration. So like for this show, I wrote seven of the episodes, but we didn't direct any of them. And mm-hmm. this sort of conscious effort to be like, what happens if I bring in all these amazing young filmmakers who haven't directed TV yet my idea, which I think it really did work out, was like what I have maybe over them as directors is a lot of experience in TV and all this stuff. But they're coming in hungry, excited, first directing job. And then also they're going to direct it in a different way. And since we're just inside of a motel room, each episode needs to feel different. And every one of them, I can, I can honestly say, I'm like, oh, that came out better it, than if I had directed it. And it's thrilling for the audience too because in the – I apologize for this again. The one episode that I saw, yeah. um, I was I was wrapped. I was having a great time, but I was also thrilled because there's Melanie Diaz, who's an yeah. actor that I love, and you re- you don't get to see enough. And here's a chance to see her do something different. And I couldn't wait for the episode to be over, not to find out what was going to happen, but to find out who directed it, yeah. because it felt so vibrant and alive and and unsettling in the best way. You and know, that was that Sarah Adina Smith, who directed uh, Ralphie, our pilot, and she also directed another insane episode called The Knock and Do. That's up third. Um, and what I loved about her is, you know, um, it's, it's providing some, I guess, some narrative backbone that I know how to do as a writer, but like part of the weird side of me that I don't know how to fully flesh out, but it has that seed. And she's just been making these like really strange, dreamy, crazy festival features for years. And I was like, this girl will have a huge career in television and no one has given her this shot, mm-hmm. you know? And then because I gave that to her, not that I was like Mr. Generous, but she gave me so much. I mean, she killed herself to make these episodes great. So that little collaboration element that's happening right now is a, is a part of a selfish desire I'm having to like stay young, learn from young filmmakers, not make the same thing over and over again. Did you... 
find that the writing of the stuff, the ones that you've done, and obviously the first one feels like it's it's a different kind of piece of writing for you. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, I know that you, you know, you, you play around with structure in a lot of the other movies you've made, and there's like there's ways in which like the compression of scenes is is like unorthodox. Mm-hmm. Like scenes will kind of have like a very like human kind mm-hmm. of pacing to them. But this one seemed a very tight, almost like a Twilight Zone episode where it was just like you know. There were like it's like a magic trick almost, mm-hmm. and I was wondering how it was different the writing process at all. Yeah, writing process stuff. extremely different uh, for Room One Hundred Four, and I'm still figuring out a little bit um, in terms of like intellectualizing it. But what what I have discovered because I'm starting to talk to other writers about it um, is when I write a feature film, it's very much plotted out. I'm still tapping into the creative side of my brain. But I got my scenes on my note cards. I know the bedrock is there. And I don't embark on writing until I really know the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I can be creative inside of the scenes. Room 104 stuff, I'll start with a song or a character. Like, for instance, with the Ralphie, our first episode, I was like, I'm just bringing Melanie Diaz into the room. There's a sad, weird dad. And the kid she's supposed to babysit is hiding in the bathroom. And that's all I know. And so like a one-act play, mm-hmm. you can tap into that sort of free-flowing creative side because it's it's exponentially easier, in my opinion, to make 25 minutes work, dramatically speaking, than 90 minutes. Yeah. Not just three times easier. It's about 30 times easier, it, um, it, in my opinion. It seems like this was a pretty fulfilling exercise for oh, you then to make so a season. fun. I hope I get to make a thousand episodes. Where did of you guys show. shoot it? Did you shoot it out, right, yeah, right so, around here? Yeah, uh, so yeah, we rented a really small kind of uh, crappy stage that barely fit us, and built the motel room set on it, um, and crammed everybody in there. And it was an interesting hybrid of going out and doing, you know, what I used to do, making hundred thousand dollar movies with my friends, and taking that up a notch so that it could, you know air as a legitimate episode of television, Um, but at the same time embrace the principles that I think, you know, there's there's good small and bad small. And I tried to keep the good small and get rid of the bad small. And we're still figuring that out. Yeah, there's nothing, what's great about it, there's nothing like apologetic about it. You're not saying, well, we only have this little room. It's just celebrating what's there on the screen. I, I I do, I don't know what it is. I just do very, very well with, with limits, you know, and I think that, um, People like my cinematographer, my production designer, my composer, they were all sort of scared of just like, what is this? How are we going to do this? You know, I talked to my production designer and he's like, so what is it? Is it like a seedy hotel room? I was like, no, it's not that. And he's like, so it's kind of fancy. And I was like, no, (laughs) it's a really bad, boring, corporate, banal hotel. He's like conceptually I like it yeah. um, I don't know how to do this visually and I was like yeah we gotta figure that out there's a little flair with the tissue dispenser yeah is. there's some stuff there's yeah. a little fun you stuff you know we did like and and so we worked a lot with you know our DP Doug Emmett and our production designer Jonah Markowitz on like how do we make simple and banal be interesting and a lot of it was creating the palette where you can throw lights and do different things that you know, which is – it's basically the, the metaphor of the show. When you walk in, it looks really, really boring. But if you take a closer mm-hmm. look, there's a lot of really interesting things. I wanted to um, pivot back to a show you mentioned, Togetherness, which mm-hmm. is a show I think both of us really enjoyed a lot and um, ended unfortunately early. You were talking about in relation to what you've – I guess I, the perspective that you just gave us about maybe it cost a little bit too yeah. much for what it was. Um, is that hard-earned perspective? Because the, the the ending of the show did seem abrupt, especially in an era when 
what gets canceled and what doesn't is very opaque to those of us on the yeah, outside totally, of the boardrooms. Yeah. I, I honestly, and maybe, you know, I'm probably too close to it to have perspective. I felt lucky that it ended where it did. I feel like most shows that get canceled end more abruptly than ours did. Right. I, there was something about the way that it ended where I was like, okay, there's at least uh, some resolution to the arc that we laid out here. So well, You can always make the movie in six years, right? Yeah, those movies are always terrible. <laughs> yes, they are. Yeah. I will never, ever do that. Okay. Um, cut to I'll be back here in six years after <laughs> talking to, about the, the goddamn movie. movie. Yeah. I'm in the fucking movie, guys. All right. Um, and uh, I guess the, you know, what, what I what I learned was, uh, yeah, it may have been a little too expensive to be sustainable. Um, and it was our first TV show, so I didn't want to go in and say, this is how it should be done. I wanted to be someone who's willing to learn. Mm-hmm. And so I accepted that model. Um, the first meeting we had with, with HBO was, we can really make this cheaply. And they were like, you should – Let's up it a little bit. Let's make it a big show. And we yeah. were like, okay. But my instincts were screaming, why are we doing this? This is a small relationship show. This is about the faces and the feelings. Why are we spending all this money? Bouncy castles are expensive. They're expensive. They're expensive. Um, By the way, I just wanted to let you know, I moved here almost a year ago, and I thought that the bouncy castles were a flight of fancy on yeah. your part. I had no idea that it was. It was just him spending all that HBO. I, I had no I was, idea that yeah. this is yeah, artistic license. I did, you? and I was yeah. like, "Oh no, these are essential to the culture of this city." I had yeah. no idea. So they're, they're monuments. Good job by yeah. you. Um, so yeah, it was it was you know it was a, a tricky thing for togetherness, and I I can say I was equally heartbroken uh, when we found out we were canceled as I was relieved the next day because I think Jay and I. You know, we wrote and directed every episode of that, mm-hmm. and I starred in it, and we produced it together. We really authored it, um, and that was the beginning of us starting to think, okay, we want to be able to live our lives and see our children and enjoy ourselves and not be on set 13 hours a day killing ourselves, but we also don't want to turn into those guys who just make bad art because of that. Yeah. And collaboration was the answer for us, and The Room 104 is the answer to that. That actually leads to a question I had about um – you know, there's this time in your career around 2012, and it's just like that. This is pretty much reading a narrative onto a, a filmography. But you know, you, you're in Zero Dark Thirty, mm-hmm. you're in um, Parkland, and uh, the Diane Keaton film, mm-hmm. and it seemed like you were doing more outside acting. Yeah, and did that have when you talk about like, well, we kind of want to have this hybrid where we have control over our careers, but we collaborate. Yeah. Does that take you away from doing stuff? Because I know you're doing. You're doing, you're it, doing the, the Unabomber film. Yeah, so, I don't it, do as much outside acting, um, but a lot of that is just about serendipity, honestly, and okay. balancing of schedule. I'd like to say there's a master plan in place, but some of it is just like, is there a good project and do I have the space for it? I will say in general, I'm moving a little bit more towards realizing I think what my strengths are is um, – as I'm like a builder of little companies, right? Every every movie or project is like a little company you mm-hmm. build. And I think if if I have like something really unique to offer, it's I know how to get together the idea for Room 104, get some stories together, get the right people together, build it, get it up on its feet. Then I need really good collaborators to take that sort of B minus version that I have built quickly and turn it into an A. And I'm not as good at that. Um, and so depending on how many of those things I'm doing, that – that really leaves me left over time for acting. Mm-hmm. That being said, you know, it is important for both me and Jay to keep our faces up on big screens uh, because that means 
we can green light projects that we act yeah, right. we become our own commodity so it's mm-hmm. like that's that Casavetes thing I learned about where he's just like oh I'm gonna go be in Rosemary's Baby because yeah. that way when I make my film someone will want to buy it because I'm in it yeah. and that's important I so think I, most people still probably know him from Dirty Dozen and Rosemary yeah, he's, he's, he's the most important filmmaker of a, of a generation exactly but yeah. you gotta keep that stuff up so I try I'm, I'm definitely like aware of like I won't take a bad movie just to be in it yeah. but I'm definitely like hmm I should probably get on a 3,000 screen movie soon How to hard keep is myself it to relevant. turn the part of your brain off that understands so many things about the dynamics of making something when you're on a set? Oh, I love like, it. I love you, do, it. you do like being just, I'm, oh, just, I'm here, yeah. I'm sitting in a chair. I call it drunk uncle time. It's <laughs> nice. just like, come in, drop some Oreos on the kids, party, get out before you have to deal with yeah. it, putting them to bed. I mean, it, it is really fun. And usually it involves something that I... Quite honestly, uh, don't know what I'm doing. Um, so, like, I, I'm a Zero Dark Thirty. What am I going to tell them how to make that movie? Right. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So, I'm just servicing that. Sometimes I'm acting in something that I'm producing and co-authoring, like a movie like Blue Jay yeah. that I did with, you know, Sarah Paulson. Then I'm a creative entity there, and that's a little bit different. Do you ever wind up s- stealing tricks from people that wouldn't necessarily be obvious influences like Catherine Bigelow? I mean, do yeah, you- 100%. You know, what I realized from Catherine Bigelow is like, you can still be loose, improvisatory, organic, and shoot with three cameras and have it look interesting yeah. if you're careful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I used to always think it was church and state. Yeah. Like, be loose and it looks like shit. Or be tight and it looks good. And I got on her set and I was like, oh, gosh, you can do both. <laughs> oh, I've been relying on this lie for 10 years. <laughs> it turns out Point Break. You should have just watched that. I should have watched Point That's Break. That's the holy text. Yeah. I'm curious about your perspective on scale and the manageability of scale because that, those have been themes in what we've been talking about. And yeah. I know that um, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck uh, did an episode of Room 104 on their way to directing Captain Marvel for mm-hmm. Marvel. Same, you know, plus or minus. Uh, plus or minus yeah, the same thing. Yeah. You, you worked on Safety Not Guaranteed with Colin Trevorrow, who is now personally stewarding two multi-billion dollar franchises. Now, that is a path that 10 years ago didn't exist, but now does seem to be almost the way, you know, where the franchise machines exist. Yeah. And they upstream people. They really do. And it works now. And yeah. it often seems to work. I mean, like John Watts made Cop Car, which was a really a good movie. Great example. And Spider-Man, yeah. which I thought was a terrific movie. And hard to hard to connect the DNA dots between them. But it's but working. He, but he yeah. did it. Yeah. Um, what is your perspective on that, you know, in terms of who's capable? Aw- of I think it? it's awesome. I don't understand those movies, uh, and not in a, I really want to say, not in a snobby way. I don't understand what it means to make a $180 million movie. Right. I have assumptions, right. and those assumptions have kept me away from them because, you know, honestly, they, they, they came to us, you know. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, Mark and Jay, like – Actors like them, they're like nice guys who know how to deal with um, like tough talent and they know how to write scripts. This, this is the profile of someone you want. Well, also who can run a, run a production, run exactly. your own company. Who so so they, they, the they want that kind of thing. That being said, it, it, it truly is uh, first and foremost, you can only do one thing for like two to three years straight. Right. And we like to do lots of different yeah. things. That keeps us fresh and vital and excited. So that puts us out of the running right there. Secondarily, I think that you owe it to whoever's putting up that huge budget to service them and what they need. You know, part of the reason why uh, HBO's Room 104, our, our Netflix original movies, are so successful is that. They're lottery tickets for these people. They are, mm-hmm. hey, it'll be well-reviewed, and it'll go out, and maybe one out of five of the things they make will blow up. 
But also, yeah. it won't be a headache for them. I think, and it won't I think, be a headache. I think and we people, take care of it. I think people discount how much that matters in decision-making and deal-making in this town, which is – It's take, huge. They'll take care of it. It won't be another problem on my plate. I mean, my – Ted Sarandos is the head of my TV deal at Netflix and, mm-hmm. and Casey Bloys – I mean, the film deal at Netflix and, and Casey Bloys is the head of my TV deal at HBO. And, you know, it, those are complex relationships. But if you want to be reductive about them, it is – both of them have huge, huge fish to go catch to take care of yeah, their yeah. platforms. And I'm just reeling in well-reviewed minnows for them <laughs> that occasionally uh, randomly blow up in the zeitgeist. And we don't know why. There's so much content out there. We don't know why anymore. Right. And and so – and I and I get to kind of – I'm almost like a sub-label where like I take care of myself a little bit. And that makes it work. So – Tying into the whole, like, would we make a Marvel movie or could we? I legitimately think we would be bad at it. I think we would be fussy because we aren't able to do the things we want to do and take some chances. I just think we'd be uh, a bad fit. But if you did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just because we're, we're, we're yeah. all the same age. I'm just curious, like, if there was the character that you, that you loved – if you were a comic book guy, I wasn't a comic book guy. You know, um, you were was, you were ho- more horror. No, I was like I was like, you know, HBO was. Did you like Dune? I didn't like Dune. <laughs> oh my no. god! No, but I loved people who loved Dune. You know, um, really just ripping down assumptions. Exactly. Today. And no, I was like, you know, that in the mid '80s on HBO, that was the time when they were just playing R-rated '70s and '80s dramas mm-hmm. like all day long. You know, so for me, it was just like. Okay, ordinary people. Yeah. Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> this is what adults are like. I'm, wa- I'm watching Sophie's Choice. Here we go, and I just loved it. That yeah. being said, my one of my favorite performances by you and your brother is uh, when I went and got a chance to see you guys at the True Romance Live. Read. I love that script. That was fun. You guys were so. They played um, the cops. They played, uh, and they were so good. Oh, Sizemore thanks, man. and who was the other guy? It was Sizemore. In the movie? Who are the two cops? Oh, yeah. Who was the other cop in the movie? I can't even remember now. It's Tom Sizemore and somebody else. And it was like, they were just, you guys it was, were having, That was really, really You guys fun. were having a blast. Yeah. I mean, that was being on stage, doing that reading. And it's also like sucks. Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette. Yeah. Right yeah. Um, I mean, that was kind of cool. But I was just, I was wondering, I was like, did you have like, is there like a, a Rockford Files in you? Yeah. <laughs> Michael, Michael Beach? Oh, or, Michael Beach. Or Chris Penn? Chris Penn. Chris Penn and Chris Sizemore, Penn and right? Chris Sizemore, yeah. I think, there's, I think there's anything in us. Now that we've made Room 104, I guess I should never say never, even though I just did that to the Marvel <laughs> movie. Um, but, you know, Room 104 is clearly a creative stretch for us yeah. and to a certain regard of, like, trying out new things. I mean, yeah, we've made movies like Creep and The One I Love that are kind of like, oh, there's a little horror, there's a little sci-fi, you know? But this is kind of taking our skin off a little bit and saying, all right, I know like we have for better or for worse kind of have a brand of like sensitive, comedic, dramatic, naturalistic, interpersonal stories, but we kind of want to like The acronym for that stretch. is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, We got to workshop that a little bit. The acronym for that is Snowflake, I believe is what <laughs> yes. it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny you mentioned, you mentioned Casey, who's head of HBO now. I think I, I saw you from across the room at the Thrones premiere mm-hmm. the other week, which is this beautiful thing at, at Disney Hall, the biggest possible stage. Yeah. HBO did the other – HBO can do two things. They can do Room 104 or they can rent a city block in downtown Los Angeles with 100%. like ice dancers on stilts for Game of Thrones. My one note for Casey when I see him again or if you can pass this on, I, I wanted him to be having more fun. Up on stage. Yeah. This is the biggest show in the world. He's only got two more premieres. I love Casey Blois. I know him very, very well. 
he does not like public speaking. I could tell. <laughs> he's enjoying his role and Good. he's enjoying his time over there. You know, because he was he thanked he was actually quite nice. He thanked everyone, yeah. like down to marketing interns. Yeah, which I is stole a very nice I stole that idea from him for my Room 104 premiere, which was like <laughs> in a much you, smaller venue. The ice dancers uh, or the, the, the <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> Did I you made, steal the canapes from the Thrones event? Well, it was repurpose? it was fun. We did the premiere. They couldn't afford the ice dancers, so Jay and I were the ice dancers, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's how Limited that's how we do it. This is how the Duplass brothers keep costs low. So, uh, if if you don't mind pivoting to another show, we are we we do a lot of Thrones content here. Mm-hmm. We're putting this up on Monday of an episode that we haven't seen because even if hackers have tried to let us see it, I, we have not I will seen admit it. I am one episode behind because Katie is on the East Coast. Oh, and we you, only watch together. That's very nice. We, that, we were discussing the other day that there seems to be a split in a lot of couples that mm-hmm. we know, including our own. Yeah, where I won't say which member of the household, our yeah. wives. Don't watch the show. Yeah, I mean, this is a nice couple show for us, and uh, <laughs> you know, literally never heard it. Snuggle up to. <laughs> yeah, um, we really enjoy it. We have certain shows that we allow each other to um, watch alone. Okay, uh, and then we have certain shows that we keep together. And and at this stage, Game of Thrones is the only one that we are committed to watching together. And I think the oh. nature of it is the the sort of sort of. You know, not in a bad way, the pulpy storylines and the fun of like watching the soap operatic plot points play out is really only fun when shared to yeah. me. It's a very – we find the same thing. Like for us, it has become a completely social experience yes. because we're talking about it. We're doing this after show. Like mm-hmm. it, it's impossible to imagine the show existing as just content you throw on. Yeah. So, I mean, I love the show and I, I'm not like, man, I wish I could watch this without Katie. I'm actually like – I don't want to watch it without her. So you 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 can go a whole week and you you don't know that the dragon ate Tyrion. Last week. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you didn't know that he's making little Tyrion poops. <laughs> Did you? Uh, that's, what's that's this week? What's this a week? solo Mark show right now? Oh, um, great question. So I really like the Defiant ones. Um, oh, cool. On HBO, you know, it's like kind of like all right, a little like insider artistic process thing. But like, I really appreciated the Jimmy Iovine profile of. He's this very creative person, but kind of kept getting dragged into business because he had that side of his brain. Mm-hmm. And I can kind of identify with that. I thought I was just going to be more of a loosey-goosey artist. And then when it happened to me in the music business, I saw it started to fall out. I couldn't pivot. I got crushed. Mm-hmm. And then I'm watching the film business change, and I've been here for a while, and I kind of understand it. And I'm kind of embracing modeling and the business side of things and saying like, oh, this is how I'm going to stay alive. This is, you know, we, we, Room 104 was, we backed into a model really, you know, it was mm-hmm. almost that, that came first. And then, and then you find ways to be creative inside of it. And, and I watched Jimmy Iovine do that. And, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. He was torn between being a creative and a business I, person. I think Defiant Ones is fascinating for two reasons. One is to see people it's always nice, I find, to see people who are on a certain level of mega celebrity and are famous at this point just for being famous talking about themselves and their lives as artists. Yeah. And you see them just making jokes about being in the studio or a studio rat or the actual work because yeah. the more famous they get, the more disassociated they can 100%. be from, from, from the work. The second reason is because everybody looks fantastic. They look yeah. one. They're complexions. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what filter they used or is this just rich people's skin because people no, look some, there was delicious. Some, that they that, look that happened in Color Correct, guys. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> to, to, to break it down for me. Because yeah, yeah. I mean, I know. I, look, I've been, I've been in the Color Correct room. You've seen, you've seen what's possible? I've seen what's possible. Yeah. I also wonder though, there, I know there is a like little too. bit of like, I haven't left Malibu in 21 years. Right. This is just what it looks like. <laughs> there, there's a couple a scenes in the show, which I don't think you've seen yet, but like when 
to humanize Jimmy and Dre and their friendship, they show like some B-roll footage of Jimmy showing Dre his new New York apartment mm-hmm. on Central Park West yes. overlooking the entire city. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I think I'm going to put these sconces in. Dre's yeah, yeah. like, real nice. Just, uh, <laughs> they're just normal guys, just yeah. like us. The, the opening anecdote of the thing to like humanize them is the time that Dre got drunk and almost blew the $3 billion Beats deal. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. my sympathy is with Tyrese here, yeah, I think. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> no? I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not leaning in here. Yeah. <laughs> no. So but yeah, and I, I liked watching Dre talk about um, you know people come to his studio and they'd say, um, "All right, let's do this." Where's your engineer? And he'd say, "What are you talking about? Oh, I'm the engineer. Yeah. Where, where are your play? Well, I'm I'm gonna play the parts. You know. Yeah. I mean, Jay and I are a lot like that still. And and people are always like, "How do you make things so cheaply? How do you do this?" And it's like, well, we work with a small group of people who do everything and like to do everything. And I. I do it partially, yes, because it's smart to stay cheap, but partially I just love it and it makes yeah. me feel 23 and I, it, it makes me connected to who I was when I was like a spastic arti- artist kid. But I also feel like there's never enough uh, time to, to just say that, which is the thing that you, the making is what you love. You make the thing and then as you know, we contribute to this too, having a podcast, but doing the press rounds and talking about the yeah. thing becomes the public, almost the public facing part of the thing yeah. or at least separate in some way from the, the work itself when – for you, I mean, obviously you're having a great time right now. But, yeah, I mean, but this is the only thing that I like doing. <laughs> like every other press thing sucked, but this is the best one. Thank you for yes. that. Um, so. But but right, but on some level, and we saw that in Defiant Ones too, it's, there's a yeah. the scene of Trey just messing with the, the master stems of a Marvin Gaye track. You yeah. Know? yeah, It's like, oh, so it doesn't really matter that he hasn't put out a record proper you know, in so many years, that that's not the point for him. He doesn't need to. He can just play. Sure, he tortures himself at night for not putting out those records, though. For sure, for sure, for but sure. We, it was nice to watch him, but but to do that at night is in a you know twenty thousand dollar night cabana <laughs> in the Bahamas <laughs> yeah. with a always a really nice tumbler yeah. of something to just drink, like, which I, I can't appreciate. Believe I've been putting those sconces in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's like fuck those sconces. <laughs> yeah. So what what kind of just to, to, to wrap up. What kind of workload do you like to maintain? This show is wrapped and posted and everything, mm-hmm. I imagine. So are you already knee-deep in 20 different things? I, I, in my limited experience out here, I know that you kind of always have – one always has to have multiple things because the timing is out of your control. But the making the things and yeah, I mean, that is, is a, in your control. That is smart to have multiple things going. The, the crazy thing that's happening for us is, is, is we've put ourselves in a position where, you know, we really – kind of have control about what we do and how we do it, you know, and not to get too like inside baseball about it, but when we make our movies and TV shows now, we own them um, and and we license them to people. um, But we we hang like Jay-Z, we we hang on to them. And so no one can tell me you can't do this anymore. So even if, you know, God forbid HBO comes back and we're like, well, we didn't like Room 104. They own togetherness. They did that and it died there. But if they do that with Room 104, I'll say, well, all right, well, I'll just go do it somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so I'm in a really lucky position after kind of climbing this mountain for the last you know, 15 years because I'm willing to make things modestly in a certain mm-hmm. point, we can kind of do our own thing. And I'm also crazy and continually reinvest my own money into projects. And people are like, <laughs> what are you doing? Go get financiers. And I'm like, no, I don't want to cut them in because this is our sweat equity and I want to own the whole thing. Do you, you know? have, but is it like there, if you could have one, like completely irresponsible Coppola vineyard yeah. sink American zoetrope <laughs> investment. Like what would you do? Like buy a minor league baseball team or something? Like- I don't think like that. You know, <laughs> I mean, it sounds totally obnoxious, but like ever since the election, anytime I have anything that feels or thinks frivolous, I run a, 
I run these bipartisan charity campaigns where I'm like, okay, I'm putting down money and I'm going to try and get a bunch of people who don't believe like me to uh, see if they'll back and You're supposed to stuff. say I would pay Jack Nicholson a million dollars for 11 seconds of screen time. For a yeah. foot rub. Yeah. <laughs> that would be incredible. Are you giving him the rub or is he giving no, you the rub? No, I'm giving him the rub. The yeah. money works either way as far as I'm concerned. He's... To me, dollar for dollar, being able to give him the rub, because <laughs> yeah. you walk away with Jack on your hands. Yeah, that's right. It's, I and feel like that. historically in Hollywood, it's not hard to walk away with Jack on your hands. <laughs> is that fair to say? And I'm glad we're ending in a classy place. There it is, guys. Uh, Mark, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, room 104, 11.30 p.m. on HBO, uh, and next season, Room 105, right? That's we'll the sequel? see, guys. The, the expanded universe? Oh, I don't know. Fingers crossed. Thanks. Thanks, man. Thanks, guys. Okay, thanks so much to Mark Duplass for being so generous with his time, and that was a great, great chat with him. Greenwald and I will be back on Thursday. I like a guest that wears shorts. Yeah. Can I say that? We have a bunch of, like, right now, a ton of, like, guests coming through, a lot lot of music guests. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just want to mention that um, Thursday, Mm -hmm. by hook or by crook, I will be talking about Ozark. You've been talking about it. You've been shots across our bows here. I have to call up Justin Charity. The, The people who care about Ozark, it's like a core group that are very important to me. You have been crashing. You, you're not a big Twitter guy usually, except for the live show that you do on Twitter every week. But you've been crashing my TL like you're on Greyjoy. Bateman memes. With just Bateman memes. Yeah. Bait memes. Uh, Ozark is my favorite show on television. <laughs> you're amazing. And I may start a rebel wrestling federation just to award it a belt. Wow. Yeah. Like the West Virginia garage belt or something. This is a challenge. Bella hasn't been back in a while because I think we all just sort of like got out of thro- the way for Thrones. We assume Thrones has it, yeah. Yeah, well, don't don't assume. Wow. Not when Bateman's on the block. This is exciting. So maybe some Ozark talk. I'm sure we'll get into some other stuff on Thursday. Uh, and then um, obviously Talk the Thrones on Thursday. Th- talk the Thrones, and 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, and then After Thrones on Sunday. What else can I say, man? You did a great job, Bransky. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Things change, the weather changes, your mood definitely changes, so why lock yourself into plans that might change? With Hotel Tonight, you don't have to, because you'll get incredible deals on awesome hotels, even at the last minute. Booking on Hotel Tonight gives you the freedom and flexibility to play things by ear, while knowing you'll score a great price at a great place to stay. So download the Hotel Tonight app now and find some seriously amazing deals.